We are beginning a new sermon series in 1 John, so if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, it's going to be towards the end of your Bible. This five-chapter epistle is full of gospel truth and gospel assurance, but before we dive into the text for today, it's really important anytime you begin a new sermon series or you dive into a new book for you to be able to understand the historical context of what is going on at this point in the church's history. Because unlike many of Paul's letters, we don't have a formal greeting and introduction in this letter. We're not even really told who the author is. There's no mention of the author's name. But most scholars believe it to be John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. Now most believe that John is writing this epistle after he wrote his Gospel. But he's writing late in the first century. Now, why does that matter? Well, it means that this letter most likely comes after all of Paul's ministry and after all of Paul's epistles. And we know that Paul was writing from the late 40s all the way up into his death, which is normally dated around 64 AD. And John is writing probably 30 to 35 years after the death of Paul. Which means this letter is incredibly late. One of the later documents in our New Testament canon. Now remember, Paul is going around from town to town establishing churches. Planting churches. Proclaiming the gospel in a town. Moving on to the next location. Proclaiming the gospel there on many of his missionary journeys. In addition to going to new places. He's also circling back to the places that he had previously gone to, making sure that they have healthy leadership structure in place, making sure that they have a healthy understanding of the gospel. So, so much of Paul's ministry was focused on planting churches. But by the time John is writing, these churches are more established. They've been around a little bit longer. And if you know anything about the difference between a church plant and an established church, there's a different set of issues that those two churches deal with. For instance, if you're a church plant in 2023, you're trying to figure out where are we going to meet every single week? How are we going to pay our pastors and our elders? How are we going to provide childcare when we don't even have enough members to watch all of the kids? These are issues that many church plants deal with. But what about more established churches, churches that have been around a while. They have to deal with questions like, how are we going to continue to make sure that our facility that we have is up to date and paid for? How are we going to continue to uphold the history of the church while still wanting to reach the next generation? How do we manage our budget to ensure that we steward the resources that God has given us faithfully? So church plants and more established churches deal with different sets of problems. Now, all of the problems or issues that I addressed are practical in nature. But what John is dealing with in this epistle is not practical in nature. It is theological in nature. And here is the concern theologically that John is writing about in this letter. It is this question. What does one believe about Jesus and about the gospel. That's what John is concerned about. As he is writing to these churches, what do they believe 
about Jesus and what do they believe about the gospel. Now these are not what we would call secondary or tertiary issues. Secondary issues we know are issues like baptism, church polity, your view on the the millennial reign of Christ. These are secondary and tertiary issues that should really not divide the global church of Jesus Christ. But when it comes to primary issues, that is what we believe about God the Father, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about salvation, those are issues that we must defend and uphold and, if necessary, even fight over because the very gospel is at stake in those types of issues. So John is writing to these churches to address false teachers that had infiltrated the church and were teaching an inaccurate view of who Jesus was. And what these false teachers were teaching is they were denying that Jesus was God in the flesh. It's not that they denied that Jesus lived among us in the flesh. They denied that he was God in the flesh. And that is a first level primary issue worth arguing over. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was not just a man when he walked among us. He was God in the flesh. And so John is not going to have it. He is going to write to them and he's going to critique these false teachers and he's going to uphold a proper understanding of who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Perhaps you don't consider yourself to be a, a fighter by nature. You don't get bent out of shape easily. You're not into conspiracy theories. You don't You're not willing to take a stand on every single issue. You're kind of a go-with-the-flow person. Generally speaking, that's who I am. There's very few things that I really want to get into confrontation over. But who Jesus is and what the gospel teaches is worth defending. Now, when I say fight, I use that word loosely. I don't actually mean we should start slugging people over what we believe about the gospel. But we should be willing to defend it and uphold it and stand on the truth of God's word. And so this is what John is talking about in this epistle. And my hope is that as we work our way through this epistle over the next three plus months, you will be, number one, better equipped. Number two, you'll be encouraged. And then ultimately more knowledgeable about Jesus and his gospel. So with all of that said, let's begin reading the first four verses, which is often called the prologue of 1 John. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy 
may be complete. So as we study today, I want you to remember two primary points. Number one, the apostles experienced and proclaimed Jesus. And then number two, proclamation of Christ leads to fellowship with Christ and his church. So number one, the apostles experienced and proclaimed Jesus. And number two, proclamation of Christ leads to fellowship with Christ and his church. Number one, the apostles experienced and proclaimed Jesus. If you'll notice in the very first verse, the text begins with four relative clauses. Now, if you were an English major or you're an English teacher or if you just love grammar, this is right up your alley. What is a relative clause? A clause that modifies a noun but cannot stand alone in a sentence. So here are the first four relative clauses that we read about. Number one, that which was from the beginning. Number two, which we have heard. Number three, which we have seen with our eyes. And number four, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. So if these are relative clauses, what are they modifying? They are modifying the word of life at the end of verse 1. The first clause, that which was from the beginning, is not talking about the eternal existence of Jesus, even though, yes, he has existed from all of eternity. John actually discusses that in the first verse of his gospel. You know this verse. In the beginning, John 1.1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, we're told. But here, in verse 1 of his first epistle, John means the beginning of Jesus in the flesh, that is, living amongst humanity, which makes perfect sense. Because what are these false teachers coming in and trying to teach the people? That Jesus did not come as God in the flesh. So he begins at the very beginning of his epistle, pointing out that Jesus, yes, he came and lived in the flesh among humanity as God. Did you know that a proper Christology, which is just a fancy word for a proper understanding of who Christ is, was not really fully developed within the church until there was a church council in 451 A.D. known as the Council of Chalcedon. This is when a robust confessional statement of who Jesus was was really solidified. So what does that mean? That means in the first few centuries in the church, there was a lot of different theories, a lot of different heretical teachings about who Jesus actually was and what he did. Two very common ones, one that you've probably heard of before, adoptionism. It was an early church heresy that was obviously rebuked. And what it taught was Jesus did not become God until his baptism. When the Spirit descended on him like a dove, it is at that point that he becomes divine and God adopts Jesus as his divine son. That's not biblical. So it was rebuked and refuted. There was another very popular one known as Arianism, which taught that only God the Father is eternal and Jesus was only a created being 
who was also not divine. Why would that be a problem? Well, if Jesus is not divine, then salvation is now based on human achievement rather than a divine achievement. So obviously, there are many more that you can read about, but those were two very popular early heresies that were circulating throughout the church. Now, not only was Jesus from the beginning God in the flesh, meaning he didn't come become God at his baptism, or he was not invented by God only when he came to earth. He is the eternal, all-sufficient, forever existing, divine second person of the Trinity. But we also learn in this passage that the apostles, and John more specifically, he heard Jesus, he saw Jesus, he looked upon Jesus, and he touched Jesus. Now, why would John mention that? John is trying to clear up this confusion regarding the incarnation of Christ. And he goes about doing it by appealing to human senses. First, by hearing. Then, by looking. And finally, by touching. In those four verses, we see four mentions of seeing, two mentions of hearing, and a mention of touch. The only difference between which we have seen and which we looked upon is the tense of the verb. So John's not trying to pull a fast one on us and confuse us. It's just that one is in the perfect tense and one is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which is our past tense in English. So according to one commentary, the perfect verb focuses on the status as John as an eyewitness, while the other simply narrates the seeing itself. But it's not simply that they heard, it's not simply that they saw, but they also touched. Now there's another story going back to John's gospel where he emphasized the fact that one of Jesus' disciples would not believe unless he touched Jesus. We know this story. It's John 20. Thomas, doubting Thomas as he is often called. In verse 25 of John's gospel, Thomas says, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe, Thomas says. So John here in his epistle is appealing to the senses, trying to get these people to believe. Look, even if you're prone to believe what these false teachers are telling you, believe me, because I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. Richard Bauckham, New Testament scholar, written a, a very well-known book in academic circles. It's very hard to read, but it's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And in that book, he argues extensively about the importance of eyewitness testimony. And here's what he says in his book. He says, testimony is the category that enables us to read the Gospels in a properly historical way and a proper theological way. It is where history and theology meet. Why am I spending so much time on eyewitness testimony? Because if you're a follower of Christ this morning, you believe in eyewitness testimony. Because everything you believe about Jesus comes from other people who saw him, who touched him, who heard him. Has anyone seen Jesus? 
I know you've seen pictures of him. Have you seen Jesus? Have you heard Jesus? Not on an audio Bible. Have you actually heard Jesus? Have you touched Jesus? Not a statue of him. Touched him in the flesh. The answer to all of those questions should be no. If you said yes to any of them, you might want to come visit with me or someone after the service. So, you've never seen Jesus, you've never heard Jesus, you've never touched Jesus. But you believe, by faith, in the eyewitness testimony that was passed down from Peter and James and John and all of the early apostles and disciples and followers that walked and talked with Jesus. In fact, no book in your New Testament canon, which runs from Matthew to Revelation... 27 books, one of the primary indicators or factors that decided which books got put into this New Testament canon is a direct connection to somebody who saw Jesus, talked with Jesus, and walked with Jesus. That was a criteria. You have no book in your New Testament that is not either written by someone who experienced Jesus or who had it passed down to some, in the case of Mark's gospel, Peter is telling Mark what to record about Peter's experiences with Jesus. So they all go back to the apostles. In verse 2 of his epistle, John says, The life, what life? Jesus was made manifest, meaning he came and he lived among John and the other eyewitnesses. He re-emphasizes yet again that they saw him. He's willing to testify to it. This carries with it the idea of a legal dimension. John is willing to testify in a court of law that he saw Jesus. But not just to testify to it, but also to proclaim it. Not simply defend it legally, but to announce it. John refers to the eternal existence of Jesus here. Jesus didn't simply exist when he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He has existed for all of time. He was involved in creation. If you started our Bible reading plan this morning, Jesus is in Genesis 1. And he is ruled at the right hand of his father ever since he ascended which we read about this morning in Acts 1. So we can summarize these first four verses by stating this, that Jesus has always existed, but came in the flesh, where he interacted with the disciples, early followers, and apostles, who gave both theological and historical evidence of his life and ministry. So we must begin this study of 1 John with understanding that what has been passed down to us, these apostles experienced and proclaimed Jesus. But this leads us to our second point. Proclamation of Christ leads to fellowship with Christ and his church. John says in verse 3 that the reason they proclaimed Jesus as God incarnate was so that the people could have fellowship with them. See, the false prophets were attempting to persuade these Christians from being involved with John and the other apostles 
and not believing what the church throughout its short history had believed about Jesus. John is basically saying, in a very nice way, if you want to believe what these false prophets believe about Jesus, you cannot have fellowship with us. If you don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, lived among man as the divine Son of God, you cannot be a part of Christ's church. Now, division within a local church is often a nasty experience, not fun, people are hurt, relationships are obviously uh, severed, but when it comes to who Jesus is and what the gospel teaches, sometimes division is actually necessary. And that's what John is telling the Christians that he's writing to here. If you're going to believe that Jesus did not come as God in the flesh, it's going to be impossible for you to have fellowship with us. Why can John say that? Because if you believe what these false teachers are teaching, then biblically, you're not a Christian. This begs the question then, what does it mean to be a member of Christ's church? It does not mean what it means to be a member of a country club or, of, or some other civic organization where you pay dues and in return you get privileges. That's not what we mean when we talk about membership in Christ's church. So the question is, based on this passage, what are the standards that John reveals here for being a member of a church? At the most basic level, being a member of a church means that you are a Christian. A born-again Christian. So the term that we use for this throughout church history is regenerate church membership. That means if you want to become a member of Christ's church... You must be born again. Membership is not based on giving a certain amount of money, taking one of the pastors out to lunch, faithfully attending week in and week out. No, membership biblically is that you are a Christian, that you have been baptized, that you believe in faith, that you are a sinner and need a relationship with Jesus in order to be reconciled to God. Now, you might be thinking, that's incredibly exclusive. Yes, it is. And let me tell you why that's a good thing. Hypothetically, if a member of First Baptist Dothan today leaves and they go back to their work tomorrow or Tuesday, and they're telling people that Jesus was not God in the flesh, but that he was just a good man who taught good moral lessons, if they were to say that, and those people that they worked with, who hypothetically are lost, determined that that individual was a member of First Baptist Dothan, how does that reflect on First Baptist Dothan? Very poorly. Not only poorly on us as a congregation, 
but it also affects that lost individual who now has an inaccurate understanding of who Jesus is and what the gospel teaches, and now they could be led to believe that they are good with God because they believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but still only man. That's why regenerate church membership happens. The definition we often use, which is not original to me, the church is the gospel made visible. We are the shining beacon to the world, to the city of Dothan, to the state of Alabama, to America, that we follow Jesus. That's why it matters who is invited in to Christ's church. Because people that are invited in to Christ's church and don't have an accurate understanding of who Jesus is not only harm that local congregation, wherever it may be, but they ultimately harm the gospel. And it confuses people. And it leads some even to a false understanding of who Jesus actually is. The fellowship that John and the other apostles had was both with the Father and the Son, as we're told at the end of verse 3. And you cannot have fellowship with the Father without having fellowship with the Son. Now notice what person of the Trinity you don't find here. You don't find anything about the Holy Spirit. Don't freak out. That doesn't mean John didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. Think about the context in which he's writing. He is trying to make sure that these Christians accurately understand who Jesus is. So when you understand the context of the letter, it would make perfect sense that he would spend most of his time talking about fellowship with God and fellowship with the Son. It's not that he doesn't care about the Holy Spirit. It's not that he doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. It's that within his context, he needed to focus most of his time up at this point to who Jesus is and his relationship to his Father. As Christians, we're not able to pick and choose which persons of the Trinity we choose to have fellowship with. All three persons fully God and relate to us in distinct ways. So there's a short little book, if you want to understand the Trinity better, by Scott Swain. It's just called The Trinity. You can look it up on Amazon. He explains it this way. The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit... I have to read this slowly because it's tricky. Has reached out through the Son and by the Spirit to embrace us as sons and daughters to the end that we may call God our Father in the Spirit of the Son. As the prologue of this letter comes to its conclusion, John records in verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now what's interesting about this verse, depending on what translation you have, some of yours might say our joy, some might say your joy, the ESV, which is what I read from, preach from, study from, it says our joy, but really, regardless of your translation saying your joy or our joy, the verse makes sense either way. Now, why would John and the other leaders in the church not have complete joy? Think about it. They would not have complete joy 
knowing that these Christians were abandoning the historic understanding of who Jesus was. Because it would mean that if they did not believe that God came in the flesh as the divine Son of God, what that means is they have abandoned the faith. And as church leaders, that would not be a joyful experience for them. Wouldn't it steal your joy if a brother or sister in Christ, a son or a daughter perhaps, abandoned the faith that they at one time believed? Would that not cause your joy to be ruptured, maybe even stolen? And that's what John is writing about here. They will not have complete joy unless they know that their brothers and sisters in Christ believe the right things about Jesus. So it makes sense, both historically and theologically, for that to be translated our joy. But it also makes sense for it to be translated your joy. Is joy in Christ possible if one doesn't have a proper understanding of who Jesus is and his gospel? Now, let's pause for a moment. What I'm not saying is that people that aren't Christians live miserable lives all the time. And they never have any fun and there's no way they can ever be happy. We know that's not true. Because we all know people that are not Christians, that are successful, that have what appear to be very joyous and happy lives, but they're not joyful according to the Bible's definition of what it means to be joyful. They may be happy and joyful according to the world's standard, but there is no way to have complete biblical joy apart from knowing who Jesus is and apart from understanding his gospel. So, lots of people that we interact with on a daily basis are confused about who Jesus is. Many people are confused. Some think he's just a wise sage. Others think that he's just the greatest moral teacher that ever walked the planet. Many believe he's just one of a number of religious figures that one can follow to have peace and happiness in the world. But that's not what we believe about Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus himself tells us what to believe about him. In John's gospel. Not his epistle, but in his gospel. Chapter 14, verse 6. I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty hard verse to misinterpret. It's very clear. The Christians that John is writing to will not have complete joy unless they believe accurately about Jesus and what his life meant, what his death and resurrection accomplished. In the same way that John didn't believe it was possible for these Christians if they followed the teaching of these false prophets, ultimately, according to the Bible, it is not possible for people that are not in Christ to have biblical joy, to understand what it means to have Jesus change your heart, give you new life. So as we begin this great book on this first Sunday of 2023, the question that I pose to you is what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he is the eternal son of God who came to earth, 
lived a perfect life, died the death for our sins, and was resurrected three days later. That's what we call the content of the gospel. That's the factual information. But as we say over and over again, it's not just the facts. There's lots of people that understand the facts about Jesus. There is a spiritual component to this. And John talks about it in his gospel when he records Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. That is the part that takes what we believe conceptually and intellectually about Jesus, which is important, that connects it with what actually transpires in our heart. When we say we have been born again, yes, we believe all the content about Jesus, but we also understand that we are a sinner before a holy God, and we need a new heart. And we need to have, as we talked about during Advent, we need to be changed from having a heart of stone to having a heart of flesh. And only the Holy Spirit can do that work within us. So you must repent of your sin and believe in faith in the content of the gospel and be born again. I close with this quote from R.C. Sproul. The gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings. And that problem is simply this. God is holy and he is just. And I'm not. You're not, by the way. And me, of course. And at the end of my life, I'm going to stand before a just and holy God, and I'll be judged. And I'll be judged either on the basis of my own righteousness or lack of it, or the righteousness of another. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a perfect life of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience to God, not for his own well-being, but for his people. He has done for me what I possibly couldn't do for myself. But not only has he lived that life of perfect obedience, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and righteousness of God. So as we begin 2023, and in just a moment, as we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about the gospel, is of utmost importance. Not just for who John is writing to in the 90s AD, but what it means for you and me and everyone we encounter in 2023.